back in the book of Ephesians this morning, and in the early part of chapter 1 still, and hoping that God will give us a good word this morning, that He will help us in our understanding. Let me read again, starting in verse 3, um, but we're going to focus in on verses 7 to 10 this morning. So hear this, this is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite in Him all things, things in heaven and things on earth. So ask God for our help this morning. Father, we pray that your spirit would give us wisdom and love for you and for one another through the word of, through your word this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. So we're going to talk about this idea of what it it means that Jesus came in the fullness of time. Not answering every question according to what that meant, um, but there are many things that it was, but kind of a broader theme of how God works, and why he works the way he does. When we think of the time of Jesus, there are many people, rightfully, who point out uh, amazing things that kind of coincided all at once around the time of Jesus in the Roman world. So one is something called the Pax Romana, the peace of the Roman world. There was a, a time, right around the time of Jesus, where there weren't a lot of wars going on. Previous to that time, you had advance after advance after advance of the Roman Empire. But during the time of Christ, for the most part, it was peaceful. Uh, Rome had already conquered much of the known world. And there was not a lot of uprisings during the time. And then there's something called the Roman roads system, which still get a lot of press today because they're still around And those have been built to speed travel and commerce across the entirety of the the multi-continent country of Rome. And then you have something like the Greek tongue, which had been forced upon the people for a couple hundred years, and now was the common tongue, the common language that everyone in the entirety of Rome could communicate, more or less, in one language. Which meant that the speed of the gospel going forward was immensely helped. And we can think of all that stuff in a secular way, right? The advancement of the Roman Empire through war and attrition and slavery and, and think that this was sort of happening and that God took advantage of the Roman world and sent his son to that time because all of this stuff had happened. But that's not the way the world works. There is no such thing as secular history. There is no such thing as anything other than church history. 
everything in the world that has ever happened is a part of church history because it's a part of Christ's history. The whole of the world, from the beginning of the creation to the point at which Christ came, suffered, died, rose again on the cross, was moving towards that point. Which means there was not an ounce of the earth that ever moved in a way that wasn't preparing the world for the coming of the Messiah. Now, I don't know the answer that, to the question you're asking, which is how do you know, the sea monsters in the Pacific Ocean relate to the coming of Jesus? I don't know specifically. But I do know this. Everything was building to that moment, which means the sea monsters in the Pacific Ocean in 500 B.C. were in fact there to prepare for the coming of the Savior. That the entirety of the universe, in fact, the way all the planets were aligned and moving in space and time, all of it was preparation. That nothing happened until the fullness of time had come. You can think of it sort of like this. Have you ever played the game or done an experiment where you fill a glass full of water and then you keep kind of filling it a little bit more and it looks like the water's going to break at any moment over the edge of the glass, but it just keeps filling and filling and filling until finally it just bursts and all the water goes spilling out. That's what was happening, except for it was God filling the entirety of the universe with the fullness of all things so that his son might come and burst open the deep. The forgiveness of sins once for all in the cross. That was the whole point of all things from the beginning. And we know this because we were predestined as sons to be adopted before the foundation of the world. And if that was going to happen, there had to be a redeemer to come save us from our sins. Which means Jesus, as we know from many other passages, was predestined to come and save us. And so when we begin to think about that, when we begin to think that the whole history of the entirety of the world was not happenstance, circumstance, bouncing things, random things, but in fact God doing the things that he had planned to do from eternity past and bringing them to pass as he wanted them, one thing after another, following exactly along his path. There are lots of places in scripture that teach these sorts of truths. One of them, which specifically references the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ is in Isaiah 46. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. This is God speaking. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning... And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay I will put my salvation in Zion, for Israel is my glory. That this was 
the fullness of time because God had said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it happen. My salvation will be found in Zion. You could go to any number of passages. Um, It's estimated that there are around 250 prophecies about Jesus that are fulfilled directly in the New Testament. It's difficult to say with any complete accuracy because there are things that were fulfillments in Jesus that aren't direct prophecies but are symbols and uh, anti-symbols and all sorts of things that were happening, shadows of things to come. But all of it, every single piece of it, was pointing to this great day of the Lord, the day that the Lord would come and dwell with us on earth and bear our sins so that we could one day dwell with him. That was the goal. That was the point. Another passage that helps us see this is in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus has been resurrected and he is now on the road to Emmaus. And he says this. Sorry, I've lost my place. Jesus is talking to two men and he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus said the whole point of all the stuff is about him. And that it was necessary. Necessary meaning can't be undone, was always going to happen. It must have been this way. And when Jesus came, he did not come... with hopes of accomplishing things. He came with power and might, directness. This is the beginning of the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God spoke in many times and in many ways by prophets, and then in these last days, at the times of Jesus, he spoke in his Son. Finally, ultimately, completely finished it. It was the fullness of time. It was, without a doubt, the moment it had to happen. Now, there's lots of ways you could speculate on those reasons of why then and why not some other time. But, as with many things, it's rarely good to speculate on things that we don't know. Here's the thing about the fullness of time. Have you ever played that game where you pour some water into a cup and it gets up over the brim and it holds its tension and doesn't spill over? You may may be able to calculate how much water that cup can hold before the water tension breaks and gives way. But with your own hands, 
you will not be able to perfectly figure out when the last drop must hit. God is better at this than us because he knows all things. He declared the end from the beginning. He knows exactly when and where and why the cup would be full and exactly when his son should come and burst open the dam. It was never questioned. It was never God pouring in and then all of a sudden things began to happen. He was preparing the entirety of the world for this event. There are things that we do know from Scripture that had to happen, right? Galatians 4 says, When the fullness of time came, he was born of a woman, born under law, so that he might redeem a people from the law for adoption as sons. It's Galatians chapter 4. The fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law. So he had to come under the law as a Jew, and he had to be born of a woman which was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. That it was only ever going to be that. And as time went on, God revealed more of his plan that it would not just be a woman, but a virgin, and then he accomplished that in Mary. All of these things, all the time, moving towards this momentous event the forgiveness of sins in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we might be called sons and daughters of God. That was the whole point. That was the whole point. And now we're after that point. Right? That was 2,000 years ago. It's hard to re- even fathom 2,000 years. It's hard to wrap your mind around 200 years, to be honest. 200 years ago was 40 years before the Civil War. And we can't even think about the times during the Civil War. I found this YouTube channel, I don't know, a couple months ago, uh, that has about 20 videos of interviews with old, mostly men in the 30s and 40s, who lived during the times of the Civil War. And so these are people like a guy who worked with Nikola Tesla, great inventor, a guy who lived through the Civil War and fought. Very interesting stuff to watch. And they're usually, they're about two or three minutes long, just these short snips of what life was like 200 years ago. We have no clue. We can't even begin to fathom what life was like 200 years ago. And Christ came 2,000 years ago. What does that have to do with us? Let's begin by thinking about this. So the earth is somewhere probably between six and 10,000 years old. Now, we're not going to get into a debate this morning of that. Um, But let's assume this for a moment. Jesus came approximately four to 6,000 years after the beginning. We can't even think about 2,000 years ago. And he came four, six thousand years after God said, let there be light. That's an uncountable sort of time for us. We just don't have a way to grasp it. And neither did the people back then. They weren't that different from us. It was very difficult to think much beyond your own lifetime. 
It was very difficult for them to think beyond their own lifetime. After the flood, when the age of uh, lifespans began to drop dramatically, people just couldn't fathom. What, what do you mean 400 years were going to be in Egypt? That's a long time. That's multiple generations. That's nobody alive now is going to be there then. And God was working in these monstrous chunks of time. When Peter says, don't worry, God is not slow concerning his promises. For with a God, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. This is the sort of thing he meant. He didn't mean 1,000 years of our time is a time that God has a revolution of a day. He meant God doesn't really count time like we do. He is outside of it. He is the inventor of it. He started the evenings and the mornings, and he does not exist within them. And so for him, there is no such thing as a long, long time. There is just him, existent, eternally, always, without beginning or end, without a middle, just him. And we need to remember this when we think about what God has done. It can be very easy to think, you know, this this man 2,000 years ago who died and rose again, How could my sins be found in his blood? How could his grace actually cover me? And the main way we doubt this is exactly what the psalmist continually says, some trust in chariots and horses. We are forever trusting in chariots and horses because we don't have any grasp of the eternal plans of God. And this isn't because we aren't aware We know that God has done these things, and we in some part believe it, but what happens is the present takes over. The immediacy of what is happening today and yesterday and tomorrow begins to take precedent over what happened 2,000 years ago. And what is coming, which is the second fullness of time event, which is the second coming of Christ, when all things finally find their yes in him and death is no more. That's the second coming, that's the final fullness That's a second filling of the cup. It's coming. It will happen. He will return. Just as as the apostles saw him go. He's coming again. With triumph and power. Seated on the white horse. The white throat and judgment coming on his heels. That's going to happen. But instead what happens is we lose track of this. We had a fight last week with our mother or our son. And that takes precedence. We get news that Ukraine has been invaded by Russia. And we think, what can we do to stop this thing? And we make all kinds of plans. And we get completely wrapped up in everything that we can do. And one of the greatest things that has happened in my lifetime is this news that Roe v. Wade is likely to be overturned. If any of us were asked two years ago, pandemic, riots, the election of a pro-choice Democrat as president, if any of us were asked, what do you think about uh, God overturning Roe v. Wade in two years, midterms, 
of one of the most liberal presidents the United States has ever had. None of us would have said, pretty likely, it's going to happen. We've made plans, you see. We elected this guy named Donald Trump, and he put some judges in place. Well, listen, we've had, we've had conservative judges in a majority several times on the court, and they never overturned Roe v. Wade. We have made plans. We have elected people dozens of times that we thought would do something, and they never did. And then this guy, Donald Trump, not a Christian, vile in many ways, says, for different reasons than we had, I'm going to clean out things for my own reasons that have nothing to do with Christian morality. And in so doing... And in so doing, God has done an unthinkable thing. Unthinkable. We could not have done this had we planned it. And God did it. A similar sort of event that happened too long ago for me to really remember, though it was in my lifetime, is the overturning of the Soviet Republic. Do you remember this? I don't. I just read about it. And it's absurd. There was no good reason for that to happen. It was accidental. It was only God who just went, and now the Soviet Union is going to be dissolved. There were misspoken words, misunderstood things that happened at the tearing down of the the wall. Like, it wasn't meant to happen that way, and then all of a sudden the wall was torn down piece by piece. And then the USSR was dissolved. You can't plan that. Reagan didn't plan that. Bush Sr. didn't plan that. That happened. Despite many things going against it. God does things with nations all the time that are unexplainable, unfathomable, without explanation. You read about the start of World War II. And Germany comes and they use their blitzkrieg and they take over multiple countries in the matter of just a few months. And then they begin bombing England and no one comes to their aid for a year. How did they hold on? That was, most of it was before the great leader Winston Churchill. They were holding on by nothing. And Hitler had the advantage, and he almost did it. And then who could have thought in the middle of the war that the Russians would turn to the Allies? That's unexplainable. You couldn't have called that. You couldn't have written that into a book. That's God doing something unexplainable, inexplicable, in his own timing, for his own reasons, in his own way. And just as I have went through many what we would consider to be good things that God has done inexplicably, there are also the inexplicable wicked things that God has allowed to happen. Hitler himself coming to power. You read about it. I mean, it's, it's like something out of a nightmare book. He was a minority. He had nothing going for him. And in the matter of just a few months... Through a bunch of awful things, all of a sudden Hitler is the one. He has got power and nobody can take it from him and he runs with it. And then the slaughter of millions. 
Why did that happen? Who could have called that? This guy, this failure of a politician, would someday rule the world? Couldn't have called it. And history is full of this sort of thing. History is just replete with it. And scripture is replete with this sort of history. One of the most famous examples that God gives us is the overthrowing of Nebuchadnezzar's mind. So Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who had taken over Israel and Judea and brought them in, said, you will be exiles in my land. I'm not going to leave you there. You're going to come live in Babylon. And now you're going to bow down you're going to worship me. And, is, and am I not the great one, Nebuchadnezzar? All the earth is mine because I am so great. And God said, don't say that again. Don't say that again. And Nebuchadnezzar went, I'm pretty much the best thing that's ever happened to this world. And God immediately went, you're done. You will now roam the earth for seven periods of time as a dumb beast eating the grass. And he did. No one could have explained that. No one could have called that. No one could have planned for that. There is no manual written for your fearless leader has gone insane and is eating grass like a cow and refusing to speak like a human. There's no, there's no manual for how to figure out what to do in that situation. The people of God did not do that. God did that. And then he restored Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar wrote some of the greatest true things about God that have ever been written. That God does what he wants. Always. That he is in control. Always. And there's not a moment that he is not. So what I want us to do in light of all of this is one, trust in a thing that happened 2,000 years ago. That is difficult to fathom and understand that it was true, that he really did come, that he really did die, that he really did rise again. These are not explainable facts. There's nothing about them that's logical in the sense of, oh, this is how people are raised from the dead. This thing happens. No. We believe in the miraculous resurrection of the Son of God. Unexplainable in human terms, explainable only in the logic and the mind of God. And that in those things, the death and the resurrection of the Son of God, we become children of God. We gain the right to heaven. And now we're in the second coming time. The the filling of the glass again. Things have to happen in the way God has said they will happen Before the end. Most of those things we have absolutely nothing to do with. Because God is at work in the entirety of the world doing as he wants all the time. And so we have almost nothing to do with most of those things. But there are things, specifically one thing, that we should be aware of. That is this in the in the end of gospel the math whew, the end of the gospel of Matthew chapter twenty four verse fourteen 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. There is something that has to happen, that we know has to happen, that cannot not happen, that, that is all but written in stone. And that is that the gospel of the kingdom is going to go everywhere. Now, what that explicitly means, I don't know. What is everywhere? How is that divined? What does nation mean? Because it's not the idea that we have of nations. Um, Nations back then, that word didn't mean the United States of America. It meant like this region or this area or this people group. But whatever that means, whatever the nations are that the gospel must go to, we know that it actually has to go. And so we should work in everything we're doing all the time to make that accomplished because we should desire for the Lord to come again. And so what does that mean practically for us? What does it mean for us to participate in the gospel going to the entirety of the world? Well, one, it means living faithfully now. Right? Two or three times in the New Testament we read stuff like this, Therefore let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Much of your life should be directed with the explicit thought that my life is a witness to my adoption as a child of God so that other children might be adopted. And so your life becomes not about you gaining anything. It becomes about you expanding the family. Your thoughts are not your own. They are for a purpose. And that purpose is to have more children in the family of God. And so everything you do, everything you think, everything you pray, all of your motion is to let your light shine so that children come in. This is a thousand things, right? This isn't one specific thing. This isn't take a tract to your neighbor, although it might be take a tract to your neighbor. It's live godly lives in this present age. Godliness is your first duty then at seeing the gospel go to the ends of the earth because it has to go to your neighbor to be part of the ends of the earth. The second thing that I think we need to be aware of is that we need to be participating however we can in the expansion of the gospel through churches being planted, risen up, whatever words you want to use, that the gospel spreads to the advent of Christ's body as the church in new places. There are innumerable ways to be involved. There's going physically somewhere, short-term, long-term. There's giving money, time, resources, thought, prayer, all sorts of things. Giving to the cause of the kingdom of God growing. And all of that, all of that godly living, explicit evangelistic sort of thinking, both of those things together are not an end in and of themselves. We want the Son of God to come again. We want the fullness of time to happen again. 
You know, when the Jews, the faithful Jews, the ones who actually believed, when Jesus came, they were unbelievably beside themselves that the Messiah had finally come because they were longing for his day. Longing for it. And all their mind, all their action, all their hopes were driven up in this one thing. The Messiah, the Messiah, the one, the anointed one, the Christ. He's coming. He's here. Listen to the way God tells us to keep this sort of thing in mind. This is from the book of Revelation. This is Revelation 22. I'm going to start in verse 12. This is Jesus speaking from the New Jerusalem. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life. And that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral. And murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. For the sake of the He said this to us. For the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the word of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray this morning.